Luke chapter 10, and we're going to read from verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Over the last number of weeks, our services have been marked by a very real, very tangible sense of the presence of God. I'm sure you will agree that our gathered moments have seen visitations of God and a sense of God doing something new and something different. And this passage that we approach today then is an important one when it comes to developing an appropriate response to the presence of God. And as we unpack this passage, we're going to explore a number of things, but ultimately land on learning how to position ourselves within the presence of God. As we are aware, this passage demonstrates two very different positions, two very differing reactions to the presence of God, and both positions and both reactions are seen embodied within the behavior of Mary and Martha. And as we dive into it, we get the kind of blurb details out of the way first of all. Our knowledge of Scripture means that we know that Martha, Mary, and Lazarus are brother and sisters. And they're a family that is actually mentioned a few times within the Scripture. They are described quite specifically in John's Gospel as being a family that is loved by Jesus. Now, it's reckoned that out of the three siblings, Martha is probably the eldest. And it's thought that perhaps she has been widowed, and that would certainly explain why her siblings, Mary and Lazarus, are presented to us as living with her. And also, it would explain why it seems that Martha always seems to be in command. She's in command of the house, and she's in command of most of their situations. And as Luke introduces this moment to us in chapter 10, he sets it up for us, and he makes it very clear that it is Martha's home, and she has opened up her home to Jesus. Now this passage that we read today is one that I'm sure we're all familiar with, heard many sermons on, heard many times, and often in our examining of the passage and our telling of the story, poor Martha often gets bad press, and she gets shown and presented in a poor light. Now don't get me wrong, there's much about Martha in this passage that isn't great, but we have to balance this out a little bit. And we have to recognize that the whole reason that we have this moment in the first place, the whole reason that this passage is presented and recorded to us in Scripture is because of Martha. According to Luke, Martha initiated Jesus coming to her home. And often the way that we tell this story, we almost infer that Jesus just happened to turn up And Martha was inconvenienced by the whole thing, frustrated by her sister who isn't pulling her weight to help around the house. And she's really upset about this impromptu happening, but actually that couldn't be further from the truth. Martha opened her home to Jesus. She invited Jesus. That's the inference. She extended an invitation. And that means that Martha wanted a visit from Jesus. She wanted to spend time with him. 
So according to Luke, Martha facilitated the presence of Jesus in this moment. She hosted him. We believe that she invited him. Now, that in itself isn't unusual. Jesus often responded to invitations to dine with people. We read of him eating with the Pharisees, even with the chief of Pharisees. We read of him eating with Matthew and his pals and also with Simon. And that's just naming a few of the dinner parties that he attended throughout his lifetime. But we call that out this morning not to draw attention to Jesus' eating habits, but rather to draw attention to his willingness to respond to invitation. It is profoundly clear that Jesus' presence and fellowship, his activity and function within many moments in the Gospels takes place as the result of an invitation or due to the initiation of somebody else. And food isn't always involved in those moments. He responded to Jairus' request to visit his house and his sick daughter. So the activity and the function of Jesus, the miraculous manifestation that ensued was linked to and was the result of Jairus and the invitation that he put forward to Jesus to come and visit his house. Jesus' presence was facilitated by Jairus within that moment and by his invitation. Jesus also responded to the invitation to the wedding in Cana in Galilee. He responded to what you would class as well as an invitation from his mother to get involved in the whole wine fiasco that was happening. Women, why do you involve me, he says to his mother. And whatever way you read that Jesus' presence and his miraculous activity, his supernatural function is as the result of an invitation, the invitation to be present in that gig in the first place, but also his invitation to be involved in the problem that arose within that circumstance. We read also in the Gospels of Jesus responding to invitations to conversations. Like when the man said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or when the other guy said, who is my neighbor? In these and so many other cases, revelation, teaching, insight, the very voice of God, the mind of God is experienced because someone asked a question. Because someone invited Jesus into a dialogue and into a conversation. And on those occasions, as well as every other occasion, Jesus was more than willing to accept that conversation and accept that invitation and step into that conversation. So throughout the Gospels, we see this common thread. It's so simple. But yet, because it's so simple, we often overlook it, and we cannot overlook it, and we cannot downplay the power of it, and that is that also often the activity, the function, the presence, and the ministry of Jesus within so many situations is found as a result of an invitation. Now, as we said last week, we can't manipulate the presence of God. There are no magic formulas that manufacture the activity and the presence of God. However, what is clear is this. Jesus responds to invitation. He responds to the moments when we intentionally and willingly make room for him and create space for him to be God. And making room and space, that's the basis of invitation. When we extend invitations to other people, we communicate within that inviting request and situation. We communicate that we desire and that we want that person to be in our presence and in our company and we want to be in theirs. And we also communicate to them that there is space for them, there is room for them, there is space and room around a table, within a party, within our schedules, within our hearts, there is space for them, that we're inviting them to come and inhabit. 
that that thought, that truth begins to challenge us in many ways. And in particular, it begins to challenge us in relation to the moments that we make requests of God. It challenges us in relation to prayer. What if we began to make moments of prayer moments of invitation? What if instead of approaching prayer as a mode of making demands of God, we began to approach prayer as laying out an invitation for God? What if we began to embody an approach that understood that in prayer, we invite him? That is, we bring circumstances and situations before him and we communicate our desire for him to be present within those circumstances and present within those situations. But much, much more than that, what if we began to understand that by praying, we're actually making room and space for him to be God within those moments? That would bring a whole new dimension to prayer. When we begin to change the mindset from viewing prayer as a mode of demanding to a method of inviting, it actually opens up a whole new interpretation of many promises with regards to prayer. Like, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the, worker, into the harvest field. What if this wasn't viewed so much as us demanding God to give to us the harvest, but actually more of an invitation? God, we invite you into our harvest field. And we invite you to mobilize the work and the workers within the harvest field. What if we began to lay out an invitation and invite God to invade our harvest field? The results could be phenomenal. What about Second Chronicles 7? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and pray, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll heal their land. What if our humbling before him actually involved not just the dealing of the issues of the heart and the pressing into him, but what if we humbled ourselves not by coming before him and demanding him to change our nation and commanding that healing needs to take place in the areas that we think are broken and, and summoning him to move at our will. What if instead we came before him and humbled ourselves in the position of invitation and said, God, we invite you into our nation. We invite you to move amongst our people. We invite you to come and bring healing in our land because we invite you to come and be God in our land. There's something in this here. How often do we come before him in prayer with our statements, our rhetoric, and our, our punching phrases and put before him a request that is actually a requirement for God to perform to our prescribed agenda and to our desired set list? We instead should come humbly before him and invite him to come and be God. When we invite someone, as we said, we communicate that they are wanted, that there's space for them. Our invitation communicates a desire to be in their presence and that there's space for them to inhabit and space, not just in our time and our schedule, but in our presence and in our environments. What if we began to bring that whole thought process to prayer and move them from demands to invitations? In some senses, we could argue this is just splitting hairs. It's semantics. Our prayers are invitations. There isn't a lot of difference in the definition between a request and an invitation, but actually there is, and the main difference is in the heart attitude. In our church cultures, we've almost taken this authoritative approach, particularly within our Pentecostal landscape, and we've taken this approach that equates anointing with volume and tenacity that sees us arrogantly demanding God to act because we've demanded it. 
A belief in our modern charismatic culture that by shouting anything loud enough and strong enough in Jesus' name means it simply just has to happen. But it strikes me that perhaps that approach hasn't quite worked yet. Otherwise, our churches would be full. Our nation would be in pews. There would be no wars and we'd be living in utopia. Maybe actually we need to move from wish to desire and from demand to invitation. Maybe we need to stop coming with our wish lists and come instead with truthful desire and longing and let the desires of our hearts breathe as we delight ourselves in Him. Maybe it's time for us to come into His presence and take a stand of a stance of invitation that says you are wanted and desired within the situation that I'm talking to you about. I'm not coming and demanding that you bring healing, but instead I'm coming and inviting you to be present within this sickness because what I really want is your presence in this moment. I'm not coming and demanding that you manifest deliverance and freedom. I'm coming and inviting you within this context because I recognize that what is needed is for you to be God in this context. I'm not coming and demanding that you outwork what I think is right within our governments and parliaments. I'm not coming and demanding revival in my city and in my nation as though you should somehow respond to my agenda. Instead, I'm coming before you and inviting you to move in my city, inviting you to move within my nation, inviting you to move within the governments and parliaments under whose jurisdiction I exist. I come and I invite you to move in my home and in my family, within my work place because what I recognize as being needed is not a result that fits my agenda, but actually what I need is your presence within these moments and within these contexts. And whatever the results are, are good because you're there. If Jesus responds to invitation, then it seems quite simple, doesn't it? Our prayers should embody invitations instead of demands. Mary and Martha would come to learn personally that Jesus isn't one who responds to invitations, is one who responds to invitations, but he isn't always one that responds to demands and agendas. They learned it in a very real way when their brother Lazarus took ill and they sent a response, a request rather, looking for an invitation and, or expressing an invitation, looking for a response, and he did respond to their invitation. He did come, but he didn't meet the demand and the agenda that was behind their invitation. He didn't come and heal their brother. That was their agenda for that moment. But it wasn't his agenda for that moment. Instead of bringing healing, he brought what he described as a display of glory, and he outworked his power in a completely different way. And, you know, if we come to him with demands and only allow the activity of God to be identified in line with our demands, then we find ourselves living in severe disappointment and living within the fruit of empty petitions. He responds to invitation, but he manifests his will and he manifests his agenda, not ours. The last time we checked, this was all about his will being done on earth, not ours. Maybe we need to allow our desire for God to become the starting point, the launch pad, particularly in relation to prayer, that we learn to invite him to manifest within moments and situations and circumstances and happenings because he always responds to invitation, but he doesn't always respond to demand. We need to start at the point of desire and make room for him to come and do whatever he wants to do because his ways are higher than ours, 
which means they're so much better than ours. And apparently, he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. So why do we limit him to a demand list? Because he's so much capable, so much more capable, so much more able to do so much more than just that. And the more is found in coming to a place of invitation. The greatest expression of faith, the greatest expression of trust is to invite God, take our hands off the wheel, erase our own agenda, and just watch what he does. It's to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but instead make room for him by acknowledging his presence, watching him get to work, watching him make pastry, rewriting stories, altering outcomes with good. Martha facilitated the presence of Jesus through her invitation. God is the God that inhabits invitation. Scripture tells us that. Where two or three gather in his name, there he is in the midst. Where two or three gather with their sights and their focus set with the clear intent of connecting with him, well, he views that as an invitation and he turns up in those moments. We're told that when we seek him and we seek him with all of our hearts, we're going to find him. The scripture tells us when we put our hearts on seeking him and express a desire for him and make room for him, he views those actions as an invitation and he fills that space with all of himself. When we draw near to him, he draws near to us. When we demonstrate a desire to be where he is and we take the time through the reading of his word and the worship of his reality and through the seeking of his face, when we make space for him, he fills that space with all of his goodness. He responds to invitation. But while he is the God that responds to invitation, he's also the God who just turns up, invited or otherwise. The God that comes down in the burning bush or who passes by in gentle whispers, who answers by fire and comes like a mighty rushing wind. He's the God that turns up in the suddenly unexpected moments where no invitation has been issued from us, but just by his presence an invitation is issued from him for us to be part of what he is doing. He responds to invitation, but he also responds to the suddenly. He also responds in the sovereign moments where he turns up in the moments of life. And we see both of these in the dynamics of the sisters. He comes through invitation, but he also suddenly, sovereignly is there. We see both of these in Martha and Mary. Martha extends an invitation. She facilitated the presence of Jesus in that moment. But for Mary, it was quite a different scenario. Mary isn't listed as being part of the invitation process. That's linked to Martha alone. It doesn't say Martha and Mary opened up their home. It says Martha opened up her home. Martha initiated the moment. So you can almost picture Mary in a situation where she perhaps just kind of finds Jesus in her living room. Kind of like he just walks through her front door and sits down and suddenly and unexpectedly she finds herself in his company and in his presence. Martha brought Jesus into her surroundings. Mary found Jesus within her surroundings. And here is a big truth. 
There are moments in which our actions facilitate and invite the presence of Jesus within a situation, but there are also moments when God in his wisdom and sovereignty invades a circumstance and invades a moment in himself, by himself with his presence in a way that actually has nothing to do with us, has nothing to do with who we are or what we've done, but has everything to do with who he is and what he's doing. And we've got to learn then We've got to learn how to position ourselves in his presence. In the two sisters, we see two very different positions that invoke two very different reactions from Jesus. As the scene unfolds in Martha's house, we're told in verse 39 that Mary sat at Jesus' feet throughout his visit, whereas Martha, according to verse 40, she was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Now, when we read that, Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. The first thing that jumps out to us is that Martha wasn't prepared. And that's interesting. Because Martha opened up her home to Jesus. Martha extended the invitation. He is in her living room because she asked him to come. But she wasn't prepared for Jesus to inhabit her moment of invitation. Here, in some senses, as an example of what we spoke about the other week, example of believing but not expecting. We believe that God can and that God is more than willing to inhabit our moments of invitation, but do we expect him and are we prepared when he does? Martha didn't know how to position herself in that moment. And as a result, what happened was that she was distracted. It says very specifically, Martha was distracted. And before we rush on and to explore that, we have to call out the scene here, which is hugely significant. Because as we read the story of the two sisters, here's what we see. Martha brought Jesus into her surroundings and turned her attention away from him. Mary found Jesus in her surroundings and turned her attention towards him. What position do we adopt when we find ourselves in the presence of God? In the moments where we come and we worship and we call out and we pray and then suddenly he comes, do we turn our attention towards him or away from him? In the moments when in the day-to-day of life we suddenly see his hand and we see him at work and we find his presence out with the church circle but in the everyday, do we pause and turn our focus and attention towards him or away from him? These two differing positions are interesting and they're important. Martha facilitated the presence of Jesus. Her invitation communicated desire. She wanted to be in the presence of Jesus. She wanted a visitation from him, but she just didn't know how to make space for him. She didn't know how to respond to him, how to position herself. And so Jesus turns up and she becomes distracted. We have to learn how to position ourselves in his presence. He's the God who responds to invitation, but he's also the God of suddenly, the sovereign God who manifests and turns up as he wills and as he pleases to draw us into where he is. And in those moments, invited or otherwise, we have to learn how to position ourselves because if we don't, we become distracted. Now, as we look at a distraction, we're not talking about suddenly we're focusing on something and something catches our eye. Actually, there's something much more than that here. The Greek word that is used for distracted, it has a few meanings. It means to drag around, to be distracted, or to be cumbered. Now, 
To be cumbered isn't really a phrase we use these days. In fact, the key to its meaning is probably found in the only time I think I've ever used the word cumbered, which is in the singing of that old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, which asks the question, are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? To be cumbered then is to carry burdens, is to be heavy laden, is to be dragging around a lot of stuff the concerns and the worries that hinder and distract the soul. Martha is cumbered. She becomes so concerned and worried about what needs to be done that in actual fact the burden, that is the weight that is on her soul and the outworking of that through her actions become a distraction. It becomes a hindrance to her experiencing Jesus. Our actions, that is the outworking of our souls and our hearts, our behavior, Our actions can be invitations that facilitate the presence of God, but equally, the burden of our hearts, the stuff that we pick up and carry and drag around with us, they can be hindrances and distractions that impact the way we position ourselves in the presence of God. If Martha was the oldest, if it was indeed her home, then could it be that the default position that she took was one of the matriarch of the house? Her default position was a position of control. And that's not an unfair assumption to come to because we read in John chapter 11 when Jesus arrives on the scene following the death of Lazarus, it's Martha that goes out to meet him while Mary stays in the house. Martha takes the lead. It's Martha that puts almost a chastisement before Jesus and acts as the spokesman for the family. If you had been here, he would not have died. It's Martha that comes back to the house and says to Mary, Mary, the teacher's here and he's asking for you. In other words, Mary, you now need to leave here and go and see him. She's directing Mary's behavior. She's nudging her, telling her what to do. She assumes the position of control. This is her default position. And as Jesus turns up in her home in response to invitation, Martha adopts her default. And her default is one which actually distracts her from Jesus and hinders her experience of of him. And this is something significant then. Because sometimes the stuff that we go through in life and the things that we pick up along the way, they can impact the position that we take, the way that we behave, the people that we become. Sometimes the journey in life begins to shape our character and nature and our default becomes our default. And while the default is natural to us, it's second nature almost, it's just what we do and it's who we are, the truth is it can hinder us and distract us from what Jesus is calling us to be and who he is shaping us to be. We need to learn then to deal with the stuff that we're dragging around with us. The stuff that we pick up, the burdens that are carried, the experiences that we've been through that shape the culture of the soul and in many senses shape the position that we take in the presence of God. Permit me to be really direct for a moment. What is your default position? What are you dragging around with you? What is the stuff that you're carrying, the burdens that impact the culture of the soul? What has shaped who you are and what you've become? What is shaping the position you adopt in the presence of Jesus? Martha adopts her default. And her default impacts her position 
in his presence. She's distracted and, and, and it does have an impact. Here's the impact. First of all, we see that her distraction shapes her vision. Martha's vision becomes so full of what needed to be done that she couldn't perceive what Jesus was doing. Clearly judging by Mary's position, Jesus was teaching. Clearly he was delivering revelation and insight because Mary sits absolutely engrossed in what he's saying. Martha's default causes her to miss out on the revelation and the wisdom and the insight that has been delivered within that moment. It causes her to miss out on what Jesus is doing. Her default position, her distraction, obscured her vision of Jesus and her ability and availability to hear his voice. Let me ask, does the stuff that you've been through, the things that you carry around with you, does the default position that you adopt based upon your life experiences, does that impact the way you view Jesus? Does it alter your view of him? Does it impact your ability and your availability to hear his voice? Does that inner conversation and dialogue that dictates the culture of your soul, does it crowd out the voice of God and the space that you have to offer him within your heart and within your soul? Does it impact what you're going to let him do and the way that you permit him to move in your life? Does it impact your interaction with him? Because it did for Martha. Martha comes to Jesus almost accusatory and challenges him and says, don't you care about me? Don't you care? What is going on in Martha here? This is a really direct statement to throw at a guest that you've invited for tea. And furthermore, where does this come from? Because we've already mentioned John 11 clearly calls out to us, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but here Martha now comes and challenges him, questions him, don't you care about me? Sometimes the stuff that we go through, sometimes the things that we drag around with us, the experiences of life that shape the culture of the soul, they can actually harden the heart. And they can impact our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. Look at the statement of Martha. Don't you care that she has left me to do this? Can we see the relationships that are called out and impacted here? Don't you care about what's going on with me? Don't you care that she is not helping me? That's a victim's mentality right there. The stuff that's going on in Martha, the default position that she's become accustomed to adopting is impacting not just a relationship with Jesus, but is impacting a relationship with other people. In fact, Jesus lays down exactly what's going on within Martha when he responds to her accusation. Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Jesus reveals that Martha's lost her peace. Jesus, who discerns the hearts and the motives of individuals, who walks into a room and answers the questions that are going on inside people's hearts and minds. The God who sees the soul describes the condition of Martha's soul and tells us she's worried and she's upset. Perhaps actually here what Jesus is laying out is what it is she's dragging around with her. There's trauma in her soul. She carries anxiety, worry, emotional pain. And what's interesting is that all of that is going on while she is serving Jesus. 
The scariest truth of this passage is this. Martha was so busy serving Jesus that she was actually ignoring him. That's sore. She was so busy going through the motions of all the things that had to be done that she wasn't actually hosting Jesus. She was so busy doing that she wasn't being actively present with the one whose presence she was facilitating. And you know, there are times when we can get so caught up in the motions of doing that we forget the need to be. We can become so consumed with what needs to be done, so consumed with the methods of ministry. In fact, we can get so caught up with ministries and doing ministry. We can become obsessed with particular ministries particular ministry people, particular styles of ministry. We can become so obsessed with the gifts and the call and the ministries that we've been given and our perceived right to function in them. We can become so obsessed with ministry and ministries that we lose sight of the fact that we aren't actually connecting with the one we're supposed to be ministering to anymore. That's scary. Church life can lead to obsessions so obsessed with me doing what I'm supposed to do and following the call and outworking what's on my life, that actually we've lost sight of the one that is calling us. We've become so obsessed with ministries and all the ways that they're doing it wrong and it eats away at us and we're so obsessed with calling out and highlighting all the issues that actually we've lost sight of the fact that our heart is more focused on that than it is on him. Or we become so obsessed in the other way with all the ways that we're doing it right and all the great things that are going on and all the ways in which it's growing and it's advancing and this is the right way to do it that actually our eyes aren't on him anymore. Jesus responds to Martha by communicating something really important. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it won't be taken away from her. I love that Jesus doesn't come down on her like a ton of bricks. He doesn't rebuke her and tell her off. Instead, he extends an invitation to her. He invites her to recalibrate. He invites her to adjust her focus and attention. Actually, what he invites her to is to get the balance right. Few things are needed and indeed only one. He doesn't say, listen, nothing's needed. He says, few things are needed. In fact, only one. Okay, says Martha, let's get the balance right. And let's realize what's important here. And he communicates something hugely important for us to understand. He communicates this. I value you more than what you do. Can we see him answering Martha's question? Lord, don't you care about me? And Jesus answers it by drawing attention to Mary and the contrast between them. And he says, actually, I care more about you than I care about what you do. I want your attention more than I want your activity. I want your devotion more than I want your duty. I want your soul more than I want your service. And this is a message that quite often gets lost within church, doesn't it? 
and the calls to give and the calls to attend and the calls to turn up and the calls to serve and the calls to help and the calls to achieve. But here is a truth. Jesus values who you are more than what you do. Let it ring clear from this platform this morning. Forgive us when we've got it wrong and forgive us for the times that we get it wrong, but we want to announce you are valued more for who you are than what you do in this house. Jesus values who we are more than what we do. And we see that in the fact that elsewhere he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Jesus is more interested in our souls than our service. He wants you to be more. He wants you rather more than he wants what you do. And in the grand eternal scheme of things, it's not about what you have done that will stand the test of time. It's the affection of your heart. It's your knowledge of him and his knowledge of you that will carry the ultimate eternal reward. We need to learn then to center on him. In the moments that we facilitate his presence, in the moments that we suddenly find ourselves in his presence, we must learn to center on him. Not centering on ministry, how big, how vast, how powerful, how impactful ministry is, but instead centering on him, how big he is, how vast, how powerful, how impactful it is just to be in his presence. We have to learn to center the soul and the affections and the attention of the soul on him. And how do we do that? Well, we shift from looking at Martha to looking at Mary, and don't worry, we're bringing it into land. We look at Mary and we look at her position. She sat at his feet. She adopted a position of humility and submission. She made it all about him. Martha made it all about her. She made it all about what she was doing. But Mary made it all about Jesus. Let's covenant and agree, church, never to make this all about Glasgow Elam. Never to make it all about what Glasgow Elam is doing, but always to make it all about Jesus. Let's covenant and agree that we're never going to shout about it. Look at what we're doing. Look at how great we are. Look at how big we are. Look at what this ministry, look at that men's ministry. Look at the number of staff team. Let's agree right now. We are never going to spotlight Glasgow Elam, but we will always spotlight Jesus Christ. Mary spotlighted Jesus. She made it all about him and she came to the place of humility where it wasn't about her. It was all about him. She came to the place of submission where she said, as long as he's speaking, I am listening. But look also at her function. She adopted the position of learning. She sat at his feet. A disciple sat at their teacher's feet to learn from him to become more like him. And you know, Jesus' invitation that he extends to us is this. Come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come and bring all that stuff that you're dragging about with you, all the stuff that distracts you, all the stuff that impacts who you are and what you're called to be, and lay it down, because I want to give you rest and freedom from that. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. Because I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls. The invitation of Jesus is an invitation of discipleship. Of learning from him. Of receiving from him. Of being transformed to be like him. Maybe it's time that we move from doing to discipling. To relinquish that which we've come to adopt as the default position and instead inhabiting a position of discipleship that allows us to find rest from the stuff that we're dragging around, the stuff that shapes the culture of the soul. The first step of discipleship is the willingness to let go of that to Jesus. And see, all that stuff that I'm dragging around that I've been attached to and, and that has shaped me, I actually am willing to let go of it all before you and find rest from it all so that I can learn from you, so that I can become like you, that we lay it all down in exchange for a union with him, to be yoked with him, that is to be united to him, centered upon him. And to begin to allow his voice to teach us who he would have us be and what he would have us become. Glasgow Elam, there is no big finish to this message today except a call. Let's position ourselves humbly at his feet. Let's position ourselves and our church in submission to his voice that as long as he's speaking, we are listening. Let's position ourselves at his feet. That means to be in his presence, to follow his activity. Let's position ourselves in that place of listening to his voice, which means we commit to gathering around his word and not just hearing, but doing and being changed by what he says. Let's commission or agree to come to that place of being discipled. Laying down the default culture that the world cultivates within us, that the experiences of life cultivate within us. Let's lay that down in order to pick up the culture of heaven that is found in being yoked to him and learning from him. And let's center on him, draw the line in the sand and commit. From this point forward, it will always be all about Jesus. It will always be all about him. We need to come and move from that place of demanding to the place of invitation. We need to move from that place of doing to the place of being and responding to the invitation he gives to us to lay it all down, to let go of the stuff that we're carrying, to never be so obsessed with serving him that actually we're ignoring him to fix our eyes on him and make room for him. Church, could we set before him an invitation? If the dimensions of invitation start with a place of desire, could we communicate to him today our desire to be in his presence and for him to be in ours? Could we communicate to him our desire to be walking and functioning always in his will? And could we communicate to him, not just desire, but space?
there is room for you at this table because actually it's your table, God, (laughs) that we're pulling up the chair to. There is space for you to come and be and do whatever it is you want to do amongst us. Let's make that commitment together. As I always say, a church can't make a commitment because a guy with a mic strapped to his face stands down the front and says it passionately. The pastor does not dictate the culture of the church. We do because we are the church. So the only way that we can embody this in our church is if we take ownership of it together. It's not me that lays down the invitation. It's not the leadership team or the staff that lay down the invitation. It's when together we come level playing field. We say, Jesus, we invite you to be everything just now. We invite you. Would you stand with me as we embody that position?